And that's one of the things about religion that we have to remember when we're talking about that makes it such a, a hot topic issue. It's because we're talking about law. Who gets to be God? Who gets to be God's deputies? Who is the most high? Who is the divine authority? It's all about the claim to the most high. The only way that somebody can be higher than us is if we give away our power. Because there's nobody, we're all equal. But we're not equal in our knowledge, so ultimately, I think it does have to be a hierarchy, but it has to be a cooperative hierarchy, like a bee colony. We have to, it's about what our value system is, what we care about. Hello, hive mind. Today is May 26, 2020. I am your host, Nate Cap. Welcome to the 8th Cubby Hole Podcast, where important topics are unveiled, discussed, and tested. Our website is cubbyhole.com. That's C-U-B-B-Y-W-H-O-L-E.com. Today will be a really big dive in the ancient depths type of show. It's a big jump in the past. We have a very special guest who I've been very fortunate to not only be very close to, but also someone who has put in some extreme time into his research. He is a symbolist, independent researcher, author, and public speaker with specialized knowledge in cinematic language and anthropology. And he is currently working on a book and recording his fourth record with his band Resin, a really great band, I might add. Among being a father and grandfather, I know Douglas personally, and I'm forever grateful for his hard work and unveiling the lesser mysteries of the ancient Egyptian mythos. His work can be found right here on the website at cubbyhole.com under Douglas. Welcome to the show, Douglas Martin. It's great to be here, Nate Cap. <laughs> been really anxious to get on this program. I've been paying attention to your earlier work, and it sounds really good. I like the foundations that are being laid. I've been very anxious to get on here and help extrapolate on some of these arcane ideas to help people get a better understanding of what we're dealing with here, because this is the material that is really getting to the heart of the matter and fleshing out real solutions for the problems that we're faced with in the modern world. Yeah. I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, we, you and I have some of the most long, deep conversations I've ever had. So I know you're, su you're supposed to give your presentation titled Secret Societies Part 2 this Friday at the Seed 4 Growth Conference, which has unfortunately been postponed as a result of the medical tyranny that's taking place. Go ahead and let us know a little bit about your presentation and anything that you have to say about the meaning of Seed and the conference. Yeah, um, my nephew, Brandon Martin, started the Seed events, and this would have been the fourth of the seed events, which I was really, really anxious to be a part of because it, not only we were taking it to a higher level by speaking at a university, it was scheduled to be or to take place at the Baker University in Athens, Ohio, but that we had a natural progression in, in the work 
and it was a, a cooperative work in the sense that uh, we were close enough to bring our work together and it all of the work that was brought seemed to complement the other work that was there and um, we had such a great lineup of speakers for seed four so I want to think of it in terms of a postponement because I'm still looking forward to having an opportunity to share the stage with these top caliber speakers which included Mark Passio as the keynote speaker and we also had Mark Devlin who I am a fan of and Nathan Redette and I've been paying a lot of attention to his work and been impressed by it and I knew there was other speakers coming in that had tremendous value to bring to the event so I'm just going to keep looking forward to actually getting on the stage with these gentlemen and doing it in an academic environment because my intention is not only to meet the standard of the academic criteria but even raise the bar because I want to put emphasis for people that are interested in solutions on scholarship. It does have to go to scholarship. It has to get beyond the conspiracy angle. Right. We have to understand how the work is going to be marginalized. We have to anticipate that if our work is genuinely bringing value that demonstrating the value of the work partly entails meeting the academic standards for criteria and formatting. And it's not that, you know, we all have to be aspiring to be literary geniuses, but we do need to understand words like vulgar, because vulgar typically Im implies the common tongue or the colloquial tongue. And the elitist, which is typically associated with the ruling class, distinguishes their etiquette from that which is vulgar. And it's not that I'm trying to put political correctness or limitations on speech. It's about taking ourselves seriously in our work. And, you know, I'm not telling anybody that they can't use profanity or certainly not to refrain from vitriol, but that, uh, like I say, at a certain, a certain point, we have to be taking our, our own work seriously enough to avoid tainting that work with anything that can be used to marginalize the effort. You know, it has to be taken to scholarship because, you know, part of what I'm trying to teach regarding symbolism is that language represents a degradation of our higher expressions. So while symbolism is generally looked at and is actually, in fact, our earliest expressions, ironically, it represents a more advanced expression of human potential. You know, the idea that Jesus spoke in parables was because he's not trying to riddle us into confusion, per se, but that he understands or the idea of this entity or this persona was encouraging us to activate the entire brain. Because Western, you know, part of the dilemma of the modern world is a shift into materialism, where we're putting ambition for utility and creature comforts and conveniences above our true spiritual purpose. 
So I'm um, thinking of the Anton Wilson, Robert Anton Wilson quote, um, the fear of death is the beginning of slavery. This putting of uh, materialism over spiritual purpose is leading us into a materialistic world where our value systems become corrupted. Because ideally, the only way we're going to really flesh out the solutions is when we get these things prioritized and get principles back in order. And principles meaning first things. That which has to come first. Our foundations are most important. So, wanted to just say a little bit more about that. This is you know, associated with the idea in the Egyptian tradition that when the soul passes on beyond the mortal existence, it's not considered a, a, a mort or a, a dissolution of the being. It's just a, a transference of energy and a, a, a continuation of a, of a never-ending journey um, in the face of eternity. It's, it's, not, the, it's not a dissolution. Um, and they called that Westing. And that is associated with the sun setting in the west as it goes below the horizon. And um, it's no irony that our modern world is, is basically based on what we call Western civilization ideals. Now, there is a distinction to make between the modern world in the east and and Western civilization, but we have to understand how Western civilization has also spread into the East and influences the Eastern world in the modern world. So we have to associate or understand what these ideas regarding Western civilization are and put that in, in context of the idea of Westing. It's the, the chasing of the lost city of El Dorado, the alchemical allegory. Uh, for the lost city of gold, uh, the idea of the man that would be king. Um, we came, we came for the gold, but we stayed for the adventure, and that pertains to the idea that you know we went on a spiritual journey to discover true spiritual purpose, and then discovered physical gold, and even that didn't satisfy us. We were, we were only satisfied when the indigenous people of that world would worship us as gods and then we would stay and enjoy our reign as king um, and revered by the indigenous people as gods. It's a corruption of, of the spiritual destiny. Um, it's an it's very, you know, there's a very profound allegory of that in the Rudyard Kipling, The Man That Would Be King, and it's, it's also a great film based on that story. It's a very Masonic allegory, but also... Very great book and very great movie. Also associated with the alchemical aspect of what, what we would call craft masonry. In that sense, it's, it's, it's really coming more from Neoplatonism, because I associate al alchemy... Um, as the later stages, you know, the more in perspective of how much time the Egyptian mythos has actually evolved, it's very late in the game. So, you know, from my point of view, Neoplatonism is, is contemporary. So I want to make sure and explain that. Um, 
you know, this is after the time of Plato. And um, basically during the Hellenistic period of Greece. You see, one of the important things to understand when you're studying history, for instance, is um, to pay attention to where the learning is taking place. So when we pick up history in academia, we find that uh, they're springboarding off of prehistory, which is apparently so ambiguous that no scholars agree on it. So somehow, um, beginning with Homer, um, we have enough a consensus continuity in academia where we can agree that this is where history picks up and we can start to nail it down in terms of, of times and places and people that made significant achievements that, that we can document and start building this timeline. So uh, it's important to pay attention to where the learning is taking place. So when we pick up history, we want to pay attention to the fact that the, the learning is taking place in what's considered to be Hellenic Greece. And that's based on the Greek mythology and the works of Homer in terms of the ideals that are popular and proliferated create the pinnacle of the Greek civilization. And then as it starts to decline, in the post-Plato and Aristotle, or the post-Plato and Socrates eras, it it's becomes known as Hellenistic Greece, and that represents a decline in that era. And then the moving from that point, or the the learning from that point, moves back to Alexandria, which is the delta of the Nile Valley in northern Egypt. So that's what's very important to understand, because the learning goes from Greece in Athens, Greece, back to Alexandria, and then simultaneously you have the rise of the Roman Republic. This is all happening between 500 BC and then the time of Augustus. The rise and then the ultimate decline and fall of the Roman Republic with the death, or you know, the rise of Julius Caesar and then the death of Julius Caesar and, the, and then the rise of Augustus. And at that point, that basically constitutes the end of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. And at that time, in, in um, 31 BC, Alexandria is sacked and the libraries burned in, in Alexandria. So the learning has now moved you know, from Hellenic Greece, declining into Hellenistic Greece, and then moving back to Alexandria. That's the time of Neoplatonism where the, the scholarship is endeavoring to recover as much of the knowledge that they can. So we have to understand that the real knowledge base was always Egypt. And everything that was outside of Egypt was uh, basically misinterpretations and, and um, misgivings about what the real pure sciences of, of the Egyptians were. And part of the reason for that is because of the expression. And, you know, we're back to symbolism and, and sign language. So, you know, the Hebrews took from Babylon what was already a corrupted Egyptian and gave us the Pentateuchs. Hold on real quick. What, what is uh, sign language? Well, it's, it's similar. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not the same as for the hearing impaired. But it's basically, you know, ritual, gesture, 
including phonetics. But when we think of phonetics in the, in the very ancient world, we're thinking of monosyllabolic expressions of phonetics and, and in, including the mimicking of the animal world. You know, they're, they're mimicking um, animal sounds. I mean, our earliest sounds are based on animal sounds. And um, like a snake that hisses is where we derive the letter S. That's an important foundation to start with. But, you know, one of the differences between the ancient tongue and modern tongue is that the, the vowel, that's very important to understand, the vowels invoke the spirit. And in that respect, the vowels are interchangeable, so only the consonants actually define what is in the physical world. And um, so Kemet, which is ancient Egypt, is KMT. And in that respect, we can give an example. Amen is no different than Oman or Iman mm -hmm. or, or um, you know, th that's just an example. So uh, Amen is the same as Oman or Oman or Iman. Um, so we just have to understand that the consonants are invoking the physical aspects while the, the vowels, which basically are a set of seven. I mean, we need to understand the vowels in a term of seven. So the idea of that is, was the, the uh, tetragrammaton or the enunciation, is better said, of the creator. The creator can't be defined. So we can't put a label on it was the idea, but that the vowels invoked the spirit and they're a set of seven, which is A, E, I, O, U, and then W and Y. And these are the vowels. So this is no irony why Yahweh from the Hebrew tetragrammaton is spoken in the way that it is and spelled the way that it is. Because it's just a, a, a way to invoke the spirit. It's, it's an idea to refer to the spirit without defining the spirit. It's, a, it's an invocation of the spirit. And this is the vowels. So very important to understand and very important to understand that it's associated with this number seven. Because uh, the number seven is the foundations of what I'm going to call the lesser mysteries. See, I don't want to hold back. I am trying to make this accessible to laity, but at the same time, it needs to be spoken as directly as possible. And then hopefully we'll have time to continue to come in and lay the groundwork to make it as accessible to laity as possible. It's very interesting stuff. I, I really like uh, your whole take on trying to find the idea, the ideas through history and um that's something that's really uh, inspired me to want to uh get into history more because i know history is just like it's very overwhelming and you don't really know where to go and you know what to look for and i think that you've done a really good job at putting the groundwork out there for people to grasp that idea we have to pay attention to that in academia and scholarship, what we find is that people can have a lot of knowledge and somehow be lacking the understanding. And it's associated with the idea of developing a strong memory. 
So this is part of the dilemma of modern education is emphasis putting on memorizing and regurgitating, which supports the idea that truth comes from authority rather than something that needs to be discovered on a personal level using the truth discovery methods, which I hope to get into. But let me just mention them real quick here. The truth discovery methods are the trivium, the quadrivium, which make up the liberal arts, apophysis, which is affirmation through negation, and the Hegelian dialectic, which is where we take two sides and then synthesize that into one harmonious compound. And of course, there is corrupted applications for all of these things. But we need to understand them in their pure forms. You know, because the idea of the Gnostics was that the, the Gnostics, they had doctrines that are similar to modern religion, but in, in the Gnostic methods, you were given the tools for you to forge the relationship between your creator without the authority. You know, but you're not going to have something that you don't earn. If we want truth, we, we must labor for it quite as hard as we labor for gold. That those that associate with sensuals cannot associate with spirituals. You know, but about you know where the learning is taking place is what you want to pay attention to when you study history. So when Rome sacks Alexandria, um, they're bringing all of the learning to Rome. And then, you know, they're basically beginning to understand that um, they're going to need a new doctrine to unite everybody under the banner of, of Roman pragmatism, which became modern, what we know as Christianity in the modern world. So let me, let me just, you know, because this is one of the very important points that I was hoping to make at Seed 4. Uh, and my presentation for Seed 4 was entitled Secret Societies Part 2, The Cult of Osiris and the Mingling of the Mythology with the Perfected Eschatology. Because the eschatology was perfected in the Cult of Osiris. And that actually happened 50,000 years ago in the Solar Cult. And the solar cult is 100,000 years old. So that is right, basically, dead center of the solar cult, 50,000 years ago. So what does it mean, the perfected eschatology? It means that every doctrine regarding eschatology, and eschatology just means final things, every doctrine in the wake of the perfected eschatology is inferior. That's what it means. So it means that at that point of the perfected eschatology begins a decline. And that decline is a result of negligence. And it's still a process where the evolution is evolving because the pinnacle of that evolution is Christianity. But see, Christianity in its modern forms is degraded in, in the way that it's been literalized and historicized. So in that way, we've lost the pure teaching. And I'd like to give you a Gerald Massey quote right here to help drive this point home. Regarding mythology, Massey states, quote, There is nothing insane, nothing irrational in it. The insanity lies in mistaking it for human history or divine revelation. So mistaking the mythology for Human history or divine revelation is at the crux of the problem. Mythology is the depository for man's most ancient science. And what concerns us chiefly is this. 
when truly interpreted once more, it is destined to be the death of the false theologies to which it has unwittingly given birth. And I'd like to read that again, just to smooth it out a little bit. Mythology is the depository for man's most ancient science, and what concerns us chiefly is this. When truly interpreted once more, it is destined to be the death of those false theologies to which it has unwittingly given birth. And that's Gerald Massey. I like that. So that's what we're talking about here. So in order to flesh out the dogma that resulted in this declining, or you know, because see, the degradation of the solar cult corresponds to a continued evolution of this mythology, or what we call the mythos. So the solar cult has been in existence for 100,000 years, but for the last 50,000 years, it's been declining radically into a historicized account and also the anthropomorphization of the ideographic types is largely responsible for that. So I want to give you a Jesse L. Weston quote with regard to that. Any religion with a fully anthropomorphized monotheistic deity is a ritual in an advanced form. What that means is that the ideographic types, which began as representing these abstract ideas by things, what, what Harold Bailey calls the art of thinging, um, expression of abstract ideas by associating with things, begins with uh, zootypes to represent elemental powers and unseen forces in nature. That which represented the things that were divine were far removed from human qualities or human characteristics. It's when we began adding the human characteristics that they began to be degraded. And then once they became fully personified or anthropomorphized, what was originally intended to represent that which was divine and that which was unseen and these unseen elemental powers in nature, that which was divine was no longer represented by a thing that represented something divine. So while we can think of the human being as creation's highest expression, it's the responsibility of the individual to unfold its highest potential. So we all have the capacity. But see, humans are flawed. And that which is divine is not flawed. It's perfect in, in every way. And the laws that it has woven into creation are perfect in every way. So when we try to represent something that's perfect in every way with something that is flawed, we begin to degrade the significance of that which is divine. So fully anthropomorphized, we've really degraded a standard of a representation of that which is divine. And that's not an easy thing to say. You know, what we think of as Christianity had a place in the pre-Christian world. And in many different forms with many different names for the same concept of the deity. And this idea for instance, of salvationism. It's a solar doctrine, so it's based on the return of the king, which is the sun. Because, you know, the mythology came from hero cults. And before they were hero cults, they were evolved into hero cults from all the way back to the totemic sociology. So, you know, from totemic sociology evolves in what became the first of the hero cults, which was stellar, meaning they venerated into the stars, primarily southern circumpolar constellations then brought into northern circumpolar constellations then 
changed into venerating in lunar cycles. And that was a schism or a point of contention because we're changing from venerating in the great year cycle of the circumpolar constellations in the south and then going into the north into annual cycles and then venerating in constellations east to west, west to east. And I know that sounds like a, a head full and a mouthful, and it is. But then from lunar, we went into solar doctrines. And as the mythology evolved through those stages, it's changing types of expressions. And then only in the solar cult and well into the solar cult did they not only change from divinizing the motherhood to divinizing the fatherhood. So the fatherhood was never divinized until solar cult and not divinized even in the first 30,000 years of the solar cult. It was still venerated in the motherhood and in the night sky. It only happened in the cult of Amen-Ra, which started 80, you know, roughly 80,000 years ago, that they began to venerate in day sky and then divinizing the fatherhood. I'm, I'm trying what? not to get too much into that right now because we're, we're really plunging in head first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot to unravel in just a, a short amount of time. I wanted to know, um, what is totemic sociology? And also, how can you know um, how long ago these cults started? It's a legitimate question, and it's part of the, the way academia and, and quote-unquote scholars discount the information. We're not going to have something that we don't earn, and we're looking for the physical evidence. But the problem with that and the problem with empiricism is we're digging up things in the dirt that we don't understand. And then we're using what we call quote-unquote scientific method to try and date these things with carbon dating and not understanding the limitations of, of these types of methods. It's only by understanding the culture, which by understanding the culture, we understand what they care about. Therefore, we understand what they're endeavoring to do. And then when we start digging in the dirt, we can get a better understanding of what we're actually discovering as we dig down into the layers of the strata. So if we're digging in the dirt without the knowledge, we're going to the information without the knowledge. And therefore, we have no way to orientate and understand how this evolution and the evidence for this evolution is actually taking place. Now, there is, that's not to say that there is not empirical evidence. Because there is, and there is osteoanatomy to be found that demonstrates, let's for instance, um, evolving sizes of the cranium. But that's primarily in the Nile Valley where we're going to find that. We have to understand that there's special interests in the world that don't want that understood. You know, they want to give us a tiny box of this five or 6,000 year history. And as long as we're in that box, we're never going to be able to fit the truth into that box because we're talking about we need to be working with a, a, a five to 600,000 year history and quite frankly, a couple of million years forward. But, you know, what we're talking about is the beginnings of the evolution of human mental processes, the point at which man recognizes his ability to reason and then begins to apply his ability to reason. So um, what this all amounts to is that our religious ideas actually became the foundations of our earliest human mental processes. 
the idea that we have a culture that recognizes its ability to reason and recognizes that it is not just the physical body, but that there's a life force in the body that is eternal and evidence that they believe in one great spirit and began to practice certain behaviors that we can find evidence that they've left behind, that they are uh, demonstrating behaviors that show us that they had this belief. So um, what I'm trying to say is the earliest religious ideas are the beginnings of the evolution of our human mental processes. And there's a natural chronology, there's a natural order of things, which means that which comes later couldn't have happened without that which came before. So there's a natural order to the evolution of these human mental processes. So most people hear the word evolution, they immediately jump to the idea of Darwinism. We're not talking about Darwinistic evolution, nor are we talking about what I want to call autonomous evolution, which is the evolution of species on Earth before man begins to evolve on his own, his capacity for reasoning in human mental processes. So at the beginning of the early totemic sociology, they began taking behaviors that there's evidence for. And there's cultures still in the world today that still demonstrate these same behaviors. In fact, every stage of human evolution in all its phases is still extant in the world today. And, um, you know, that's a very controversial thing to say. And we have to be careful when we tread on this ground. So. The main, you know, main thing I would want to put emphasis on this is that we're not disconnected, we're not separated, but only by tuning into the higher frequencies and accessing the unused parts of our brain, typically what would we would consider to be right brain that deals with the abstract unseen, are we going to be able to develop a perception where we perceive the things that these empirical scientists and archaeologists and anthropologists have all failed to understand because they went to the information without enough knowledge. They went unprepared. So the same things that they had the tendency to overlook were the same things that their contemporaries have overlooked. So what we have in science is a consensus and a consensus, you know, bias. But if we can flesh this out, we can show that, you know, ultimately in the universities we're teaching religion in the sense of dogma. You um, speak of, um, since we're on the topic of evolution, you speak of, you know, weaponry, the evolution of weaponry and ritual in these, you know, in the mythos or these hero cults. Why is that so important to pay attention to, you know, or to, you know, why is it important to, important to understand? When we get into the archaeology and the anthropology, what we find is that we're looking for osteoanatomy evidence, which means they want to dig up skeletons that show inferior phases of the shape of the skull, um, lesser sizes of the shape of the skull, what we think of Neanderthal man. You know, part of understanding it is understanding what the dangers of Darwinism are. You know, why the status quo would want us to have a certain worldview regarding origins and how that would benefit them. For one thing, they want to drive us into the arms of the authorities. 
and teach us that truth comes from authority. But see, these are not easy subjects, and they're, and they're very difficult questions to address. I expect that as we, as you continue your podcast series, I'll, I'll be able to hopefully keep coming back onto the show, and we can keep getting into the same material until we can flesh it out enough to really give you the answers. Because definitely, I don't want to. Um, a lot of what we've already discussed sounds unfinished, and it is. And part of what we got to understand is that we're limited in our understanding by words. Um, because like I say, I want to, I mean, my ambition is to teach the higher expressions, which are form and symbol. So we have to understand how words constitute a degradation of our higher capacities to express and understand. So we're limited in our understanding by words. You know, part of the befuddlement or the stultification of the modern academic world is they've lost touch with these ancient expressions and these, these sublime, arcane knowledge. The expression is obscured, and I, you know, I want to finish what I was saying. The, the, the Hebrews took from Babylon what was already a corrupted Egyptian and gave us the Pentateuchs. And that's a cor- not just a corrupted Egyptian, but it's also a corrupted Egyptian in the fa- in the solar phase. But uh, the Greeks and you know, so the Hebrews took from the Babylons what was already a corrupted Egyptian, and gave us the Pentateuchs. And they never understood the Egyptian sign language, and then the Greeks never understood the Egyptian sign language. And their perversions of it were taken by the Romans, which classical scholars have taken and perpetuated into the modern world. So this befuddlement is nothing new. You know, the books that, in, that are in the Bible, the scriptures, we have to understand, number one, yes, they are very politically biased. There's plenty in there that has nothing to do with spirituality. And we also have to understand that the pure ancient, the real ancient mysteries and the ancient teachings never existed in a textual form. So academia and archaeology and anthropology are discounting ancient expressions, which they never understood in the first place. So they're, they're only going to give credence to something that is in a form of text. And that's very contemporary in terms of how long and how old this wisdom is. Because the purest forms of this never existed in a textual form. You know, they have the same dilemma that the Greeks had. They never understood the Egyptian sign language. They never understood the Egyptian expression of symbolism and sign language. So we have to keep that in mind. And another thing I want to say here that we have to keep in mind is that all new religions endeavor to obliterate all traces of their predecessors. So why is that? Why do we find that phenomena of the solar evolution of the, you know, particularly in the solar cult is where we find this happening the most. So what we find is the solar cult gridding or fleshing out the hallowed ground of the stellar and lunar phases of the mythos and finding or gridding out their hallowed ground and then destroying their temples and trying to build their te- and the solar temples on top of it. And that actually comes all the way into the, you know, the last eon before the rise of Rome and Christianity. Um, we're still, we still find um, there's evidence that that's what's taking place. But we have to also understand that 
the stellar mythos at that point in time is is stagnated. We still have men dedicated to the service of the stellar mythos, but because their their mythos had been driven out of the Nile Valley, the remnants of it were carried by what we would call the caravans that were sent out, what we might think in the modern world or call or identify with as the Druids. You know, these represented roving secret societies that were keepers of ancient wisdom, but we got to put that in perspective of how much time that they had been, you know, how long ago they were driven out of the Nile Valley where the sanctuary was, where the mythos could be evolved, and that they were just keeping as much of the symbolism intact, which became vestigial over time. We have to understand that the ability to rediscover the pure meanings of the symbolism that was kept intact that became vestigial. We have to understand that you know the, the, the possibility to rediscover it is because this, it was so uh, meticulously preserved in the way that it was preserved. So even though it has become vestigial, it is possible to flesh that out now. But quite frankly, there was a period of nescience. And I want to say that, you know, it's only been within the last 100 years that it's actually possible to take what the secret societies managed to preserve into the modern world and put it all back together to where it can actually be rediscovered and reinterpreted correctly and and understood. That's only been possible for the last 100 years. And it's largely due to J. Norman Lockyer's work, for which is uh, paved the way for Gerald Massey and then ultimately Albert Churchward and Alvin Boyd Kuhn and Manly P. Hall, which I pretty much consider to be the most important authors of our times. And I don't want to forget to mention Jesse L. Weston. I'd have to uh, corroborate that for the most part. I haven't really researched all their work enough, but uh, from what I have researched, I definitely can uh, see how important their work really is. Well, we're just starting to scratch the surface because part of understanding this is the idea that we can't serve two masters is that we all have the capacity to unlock these deeper expressions and our ability to decode the sublime information from the environment. But see, again, the limitations of the quote-unquote scholars is that they're looking at the same information with the same level of consciousness, not able to perceive or receive the sublime information that's available right before our very eyes. So we have to understand symbolism. See, symbolism is the key. But how do we understand symbolism and what's causing it what is making it such a, a difficult thing to do? Part of it is we're talking about unused part of our brain. So the only way that we're going to be able to really perceive this sublime arcane information is to find a ways to, to re-strengthen those unused atrophied areas of the brain. So when somebody is looking for instant gratification and wanting somebody to tell them exactly what it is and then walking away dissatisfied with the explanation they were given it's because no one can do their work for them if they want to really know they're going to have to labor for it quite as hard as they labor for gold and um at the risk of sounding arrogant which isn't a bad thing 
because I can never humble myself to the point where I would tell you something I don't know, something that I do, is that the only way that this is possible is to strengthen these atrophied areas of the brain, which is typically associated with right brain. Because Western idealism and Western ambitions are based on utility, materialism over spiritual purpose. So this is a big part of the schism, this Roman pragmatism. In the big picture of things, we're selling our soul for creature comforts. So it's no, it's no irony that we see people today hoarding toilet paper because toilet paper is the perfect archetype of creature comforts. And when it comes down to it, we're selling our soul for creature comforts. And um, it's associated with materialism, the idea of T.S. Eliot's not with a bang but with a whimper. The idea that man relinquishes his freedom and his soul without even fighting back and just rolls over. That's, you know, not with a bang, but with a whimper. You know, I want to back up a little bit. These are difficult subjects. So part of us being able to make progress with these subjects is to learn to be honest with ourselves. And the process of learning being honest with ourselves is a matter of Understanding we're talking about not only esoteric wisdom, you know, it's esoteric in the sense of the modern world, that we're in a post-apocalyptic world where the knowledge has been revealed, or it's now possible to access the knowledge, but it's still esoteric knowledge. So what, you know, we have to understand that not only was there a long period of time where there was actually nescience, but that the knowledge that was available had become occulted. So the ruling corrupted priest classes were, were at a certain point holding that knowledge back from the masses. And they still had at least a big enough piece of the mythology that was potent, but that more and more it became corrupted the more they wanted to use that to control people by holding back the tools that we need to flesh out the deeper understanding. So we're also talking about occultism, which means that which was hidden. But see, the occultism in the not-so-distant world and all the way into the remote ancient world, it was a result of a deterioration and ultimately a corruption and a deliberate perversion of the pure mythology and also how language exchanged the expressions of pure symbolism in sign language. There's a lot to this, so just trying to, you know, there's a few things I want to make sure and say. Okay, so one of the things I want to say is that part of the thesis for the presentation I had coming up was to explain the role of the secret societies and that each stage of the evolution of the mythos, when, when a significant change might occur in the mythos, they would send out caravans to spread the knowledge out all over the world. But when the caravans leave the sanctuary of the Nile Valley, whatever they take with them at that phase of the evolution begins to stagnate. So the evolution is only occurring in the Nile Valley where the sanctuary is. So as it spread out all over the world, wherever it settled, it already was going into a stagnated phase. Now, over long periods of time, epochs, they kept some of the symbolism intact that, that managed to make it into the modern world through their endeavors and their efforts. But it did not evolve from that point. So whatever phase that we're finding it outside of the Nile Valley, we have to understand that that represents a stagnated phase of that evolution of the mythos. 
So when we start digging in the dirt, we're going to have a much better idea of what we're dealing with. That's one of the points I wanted to make, but we have to understand in the pre-Christian world that this idea that Christianity was born out of already existed under different nomenclature throughout the entire Fertile Crescent and, and beyond into the East and the Indus Valley and, you know, quite frankly, uh, all over Europe. We have to understand that the secret societies played a very vital function in those times. And the function of the secret societies were a continuation of your general education. So when you completed your general education of your curriculum, you were expected to come out of your school or what you might call your university and then go into a secret society. We understand now, you know, the big universities, they have the secret societies, but these are corrupted, at least have the potential to have been corrupted. And we have to understand, as soon as a secret society becomes above ground, above sub rosa, it's immediately infiltrated by special interests. And what is a special interest going to do? It's going to go in there, it's going to pervert the method and the teaching, and then bring that out into the light of day to marginalize the function of the secret society. So I want to just be able to say this a certain way. The secret societies were a vital function in the pre-Christian world. And their role was to, you know, or it was expected of the student once he completed his general educations to go out and join a secret society. But before being accepted into the secret society, he first had to choose an exoteric faith, what we think of as modern religion. Mm. So because that was a prerequisite requirement, he couldn't be taken into the secret society until he chose his exoteric faith, upon which he could be taken and initiated into the secret society where he would receive the tools that would allow him to flesh out the true meaning of the exoteric religion or the exoteric doctrine, and then learn and receive the esoteric meaning of the exoteric doctrine. So we have to understand, and I want to make sure that that comes through, if nothing else, on this podcast, because that was a big part of the thesis of my presentation that I was going to give at the Baker University in Athens, which I still am going to give, and hopefully start getting some better platforms to present this material. You know, ultimately, we wanted, you know, I wanted to trace it forward from the cult of Osiris all the way into the Christian world and then bring that all the way up into the modern world or the rise of Christianity into the modern world. So we have to understand that this idea of Christianity existed before what happened in Rome. You know, it existed before the Roman church. So what the Roman church did effectively was that they packaged and labeled the exoteric religion and then went to war on the secret societies. Because the secret societies, remember, were the necessary vital function of the society where you could go first choosing your exoteric faith and then go into. Because see, even in modern masonry, they accept all faiths. Whatever your book of faith is, they welcome into that society. Then they want to give you the tools to flesh out the deeper esoteric meaning of your exoteric faith or your exoteric religion or your exoteric doctrine. But without those tools, that's not really possible. So why is that? 
And, you know, I mean, I didn't try to avoid your question, but see, this is what we're getting to. What are these tools? We have to understand that the ancients spiritualized everything. So that every new discovery of knowledge was sacred. So what they were endeavoring to do was find ways to preserve that knowledge. So they spiritualized it. Every new discovery was sacred. What did that mean? It meant that it had to be put into a stage of repetition where it can't get lost and that it was there to serve us to gain a better understanding of truth, which corresponds to the one great spirit. The closer we get to the science of causes puts us in direct proximity with our creator. So by forming, or the idea of forming a relationship with our creator has to be earned because it's about learning a science of causality. So the more we understand causality, the closer proximity we're coming to our creator, the cause of causes. So the idea is that they spiritualized everything and it was became sacred. So this idea of worship, you know, it's a corrupted idea because it came from repetition of ritual. And the idea of repetition of ritual was the method of preserving the knowledge and making sure it got passed forward to the new generations. In a vestigial form, we would call that worship, you know, because that's what worship is. It's like externalizing our faith instead of internalizing our work. So worship in itself, that term, is, it represents a corruption of ritual, which represents a repetition as a vital function to pass knowledge forward and constitutes a, an increase of understanding, an increase in our learning. So what I'm trying to say is by spiritualizing the tools or the implementation, in the implementation, we find the evolution. In other words, you know, I want to say starting with axe, when we have stone on the stick, what we might call hammer, axe, it was better to associate and understand with axe. We're hafting stone onto stick. I'm trying not to go directly into that because it's a big topic. But just, you know, from our first earliest implementation forward, we know axe or hammer came before bow. And, you know, we know that hafting stone on the stick came before metallurgy. And then we know that we can't have sword or blade until we have the metallurgy. So that, that's where we find this evidence of this evolution in the implementation. I'm trying to respond to your question. So it's in the implementation, and then after, after we have metallurgy and sword, and, and we, you know, I'm trying to avoid terms like Bronze Age, Iron Age, because those bolster the ideas of the Yuga cycles and gives us a distorted vision of what the evolution is really about. But just pay attention to the implementation. So after sword, ultimately, we come to gunpowder. And then following gunpowder, we find improvements in, in applications of gunpowder and then ultimately projectile weaponry and then into the modern age of technology, which is just beyond, it's beyond our wildest imagination now what the technology for weaponry specifically can be. But, you know, particularly want to use the term implementation. So we'll back up a little bit with this. The tools that you would be given in the mystery schools to flesh out the meaning of your exoteric faith and understand the esoteric understanding of the faith. 
want to think of it in terms of learning a science and that this is what constitutes what we know as or think of as the mystery schools, which give us access to the mysteries themselves. And that without these tools, it's not possible to access it. So one of the things to understand is what, you know, what is, what makes losing ancient knowledge so dangerous? Because it took so long to develop and understand. And then the further we drift or go astray from pure forms, we may never be able to recover it. Because we're talking about a knowledge base that took hundreds of thousands of years to develop and understand. And then since it got lost, we've only been in, you know, only 50,000 years have passed. And now we have a world filled with dogma. So not only do we have to figure out a way to get back to, you know, where it starts to go awry, but we have to understand how it evolved to that point from the pure forms of totemic sociology, which became early hero cults. And then those hero cults evolving the mythology to ultimately into the eschatology and then perfecting the eschatology, and then changing the types and straying from the original to the point where it starts to go into a deteriorated form, ultimately ending up fully anthropomorphized. So, um, see, I'm trying to go right back over the same original questions to keep putting it into a perspective that we can work with, and I just want to try to wrap up this section with, with this, is that, you know, there's a natural order to things, and there's a a linear trajectory of the early evolution of the human mental processes. And I do want to throw this in there, just, you know, from the totemic sociology into the first hero cults, which is stellar. First, they propitiated the one great spirit. Then they propitiated ancestry. And that's the point where we know religion begins. Because they're demonstrating behaviors that show their belief in an everlasting existence and an afterworld for the journey of the soul. So that's where religion begins, where they propitiate ancestry. So first they propitiate the one great spirit. Then they propitiate ancestry. Then ultimately they propitiate elemental powers. And the point where they propitiate ancestry is the point where we can say religion begins because they're demonstrating behaviors that show their belief in an everlasting soul. And modern, quote, scholars have made the mistake that the ancient elders would never have made, and they've confused and construed propitiation of ancestry with propitiation of elemental powers. And this is where we get the idea of the demigod. This is where we get the idea that gods from heaven came down to earth and mingled with the daughters of men. So it's addressing some of the central dogma. We have to understand, and I just said it, I'm going to say it one more time. Modern scholars have made a mistake that the ancient elders would never have made, and they've confused and construed propitiation of ancestry with propitiation of elemental powers. And I'm not even getting warmed up. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a great place to uh, take our break, because we're coming up on the hour, and... Uh... We will continue with the mythos, and Doug will also, uh, I'm going to ask him about the cubbyhole and what his take is on that. So stay tuned, and we'll see you on the other side.
Okay, we are back. And we are joined by Douglas Martin. Again, his work can be found right here at cubbyhole.com under Douglas. So, before we dive into the ancient Egyptian mythos, what is your take on the meaning and significance of the cubbyhole? I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely wanted to extrapolate some on that subject. I've been paying attention to your early podcasts and I was very anxious to jump in and throw in my two cents on that. It's actually very, very significant because it represents a repository, a place where we can store the knowledge. So part of understanding the ancient culture is understanding what they're endeavoring to do. And what they're endeavoring to do is find ways to preserve the knowledge as well as to pass the knowledge forward to the new generations. And that's very, very important to understand. So this idea of the cubbyhole, which is also associated with the source of creation, the archetypal womb, if you will, which is associated with the motherhood. The idea that the divinized motherhood is more in line or more representative of the creation or the creative force. As I said before, the fatherhoods were not divinized until partway into the solar phase of the evolution of the mythos. So during the stellar phase and the lunar phase in the evolution of the mythos, only the motherhood was divinized. And the divinization of the fatherhood happened at the point where we began to venerate in day sky, because the night sky was always associated with the spiritual realm, corresponding also to southern hemisphere, which corresponds to feminine, the, the feminine, while the northern hemisphere and the day sky correspond to the masculine. It's very important to understand. So we're going to focus on, we're going to keep coming back to this day sky, night sky conundrum or this paradox. We're going to find that the struggles in the priest classes are largely regarding how we're propitiating the one great spirit and in what ways we're expressing our reverence or venerating this one great spirit. So with regard to the cubbyhole, you know, what I'm endeavoring to do right now is try to, first of all, put emphasis on how important it is to understand. Obviously, it's a reference to a cub which is a reference to a bear. We're going to learn that in the stellar mythos, they're venerating in southern, ultimately northern, circumpolar constellations, where they ultimately preserve their knowledge into the constellation Ursa Minor, which is known as the little bear. That's very significant. Also associated with the idea of a cave, which is a place where something can be stored, or how the cave corresponds to the idea of the womb, that which is feminine. We have to understand the feminine principle is submissive, and contrary to that, the masculine principle is penetrative. So it's the masculine principle that represents the penetration of the physical world. So when we get into the significance of the implementation, starting with hafting stone onto stick, which we want to think of as double axe, that represents <clears throat> power. So before we have implementation, power is coming from the hand. But once we extend that power into the implementation, we have more power. So the implementation 
represents an advancement in our powers of reasoning and our powers of application to impact, penetrate, and affect the physical world. So it represents power. So double axe is the cleaver of the way. You know, it's the idea that where we penetrate the physical world, we're cutting a path. That's why it's basically associated or stated as the cleaver of the way. So double axe is the cleaver of the way or the great chief of the hammer. It represents power. It's very important to understand because in the later phases of the mythology, you know, we find the Tau cross and we find ultimately Thor's hammer. These archetypes and these symbols, they still represent the same thing. Of course, obviously, it's right there in the letter T. No irony that we find it in the Christian cross in a lowercase form because the archetype still is in that form. This double axe is very significant. And I'm trying not to go fully into the axe right at this point because it's such a vast topic to understand and it's pertaining to this evolution of this mythos because as technology advances, the implementation advances, and the same concept is brought on into the new implementation. So cleaver of the way in axe form is brought on into the later implementation. So, you know, at the at the point where, you know, we introduce bow and arrow, then arrow and bow become cleaver of the way or typify cleaver of the way. And then at the point where we have spear, that becomes cleaver of the way. And then on into sword becomes cleaver of the way. And associated with metallurgy, which is an advancement in technology. And then gunpowder and projectile weaponry becomes cleaver of the way. And then, you know, nuclear warheads ultimately become cleaver of the way. We're wielding the forces of nature with the power to impact and penetrate the physical world. Our responsibility is to attain our full capacity for reasoning and take the responsibility that comes with being able to unlock these powers in the universe. So in science, for instance, just because we could doesn't mean we should. We have to have temperance. We have to take responsibility. Because what's happened as the mythos evolved, beginning in the early hero cults, the, what, what I want to refer to as the lesser mysteries are, are developed and formed and these are a set of seven. And all of the knowledge was actually preserved in this set of seven or in this number seven. So I know that's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to understand because what we first started talking about is how language was a degradation of the symbolism because the idea was that they had developed a way to store massive amounts of knowledge in the most basic forms. So we have to understand how that's possible. It's possible because. It's a matter of bringing the knowledge to the information. And for, for people not familiar with like the, the symbol of the gavel, the original symbol, how does that look? And how does that, you know, what, do, what does that mean when you say nater? How do they go together? The symbol of the gavel is the point where we're evolving from totemic sociology into the first hero cult. So in that phase of the evolution, the reason is being applied 
So the knowledge is first stored in symbol, in that particular symbol, which is three sticks crossed, and that is gavel. And three sticks crossed gives us seven points. The center point and then the six exterior points of three sticks crossed is gavel. And that center point represents ultimately the hero, where the physical realm is penetrated by action. It represents the action that impacts the world, penetrates the world, and leaves a lasting impact in the world. So the idea that we're doing God's work, that center point can only represent penetrating the physical world with right action when we're in alignment with proper purpose. We can't accidentally do the right thing. So the idea of the hero is that which or he who or or they which understand the principles principles first so before action we have our principles in order that's the idea so the idea of horus for instance one of the heroes in the egyptian mythos is that who has become like horus so to become like horus is to understand the lesser mysteries to not only understand the lesser mysteries but to be able to demonstrate the lesser mysteries you know the significance of the numerology is very important it's interesting because it, just like in the alphabet the vowel invokes the spirit and the consonants invoke the physical realm or the description of the physical realm or are inferring to that which is physical in the number system, it's the odd numbers that invoke the spirit. So when we arrive at the seven, we have to understand that at that point, we've completed the octave in terms of a musical scale. You think of it, you know, after seven notes in the musical scale, we begin the new octave. So the eight in that perspective is the one. So it gets a little confusing there because we have to understand that uh, there's ancient number systems. So before we had the two, we had the one. And before we had the three, we had the one and the two. So the one and the two gave us the three. And then we had the four. So there's a natural order of the things. And I wanted to finish that point from the first segment. You know, it starts out as a linear trajectory. And it's about how we're keeping, you know, part of it is how we're keeping track of time. Why the way we're able to discover these long epochs of time is because of the way the ancient stellar people kept their time in the circumpolar constellations based on the great year cycle of 25,827 years. So in doing that, they were able to keep track of long periods of time and keep records of it. So when we went into the next phase of the evolution of the mythos, which is lunar, we compromised that method of timekeeping, which actually proved to be extremely detrimental to keeping the chronology intact and ultimately that led from breaking our connection with ancestry and breaking away from the source of the evolution of the early mental processes which ultimately led us astray so the idea was that the original initial trajectory of the evolution of human mental processes is linear but at the point where we begin to venerate and keep track of time in the annual cycles that represents branching off of that linear trajectory in the lunar cycle. So that's a, a very critical juncture 
and the evolution of human mental processes. And then at the point where we go into the solar phase of the evolution of the mythos, again, we're branching off of that branch. And it's in the solar phase where it eventually goes completely awry. So that's one of the points I was trying to make earlier. I hope I'm coming through clearly on that. But see, again, with these number systems, there's a natural order to the things. And we have to understand that there's ancient number systems that, were, that precede our current DECA system. And that all d new discoveries and all new knowledge is sacred. So backing up, the idea that the seven completes a cycle, then the eight begins the new cycle. So in that respect, the eight is the one. So back up again. Odd numbers invoke the spirit. So the even numbers invoke the physical realm or refer to the physical realm. And this is paradoxical because we get to the eight. We, we associate the eight with an even number, but the eight is the one. So that's an odd number. And then from the eight to the nine and then ultimately to the ten, where we enter into the double digits. So once we get past the seven, we're going into the what we're going to call the greater mysteries, which were originally a set of 10, but ultimately augmented to a set of 12. So these numbers are very significant. We have to understand. So in between the 7 and the 12, we have the 8, 9, 10, and the 11. And most significantly, between the 12 and the 7, we have the 10, which represents the at 10. We have to understand that the at 10 gives us the power to unlock the forces in nature to the point where we can wield the forces in nature. So I want to tell you that the ancients understood there was danger there, which means they had knowledge that they held back for certain reasons, because in the general population or the, in, in the majority of the masses, to just hand that knowledge over without the temperance and the dedication to the foundations of the lesser mysteries, we had the potential to go into the greater mysteries and develop the greater mysteries and disregard those foundations which are in regard to principles and first things where we have temperance so what we have in the modern world is a case where we have the greater mysteries fully developed but we've lost the lesser mysteries which were in the seven so in the modern world we have the greater mysteries we're into the 12 so all things 12 are dealing with the zodiac so obviously there's a connection to the astronomy and cosmology. So we have to, we have to remember that the, the early hero cult were also the early astronomers. And their astronomers also meant that they were also the early cosmographers, which means they used the uranography to write and store knowledge into the cosmos, into groups of stars what we call constellations so without you know trying to get too far off track here it's very significant to understand that the odd numbers invoke the spirit and that the even numbers invoke the physical realm so when we get to the eight the eight is the one and that's an odd number now i want to finish this point so in that respect, the the eight is an odd number, and then the nine becomes an even number, and the ten an odd number, and the eleven an even number, and the twelve an odd number, and then the thirteen an even number, and the fourteen an odd number, 
The 8 is the 1, so 9, 2, 10, 3, 11, 4, 12, 5, 13, 6, 14, 7. Now we're back to the 7. It's very confusing. We have to understand, and if we keep moving that numerous number system forward, we're going to keep finding that 7 corresponding into the multiples of 7. It's very significant because this is where the lesser mysteries are stored. So once we go past the seven, we're going into the greater mysteries, which originally were in a set of ten. So that was the 17 gnomes that were in Egypt, based on the seven lesser mysteries and then the ten greater mysteries, which ultimately became twelve. And all things twelve are dealing with the zodiac, and all things seven are the little bear, which is Ursa Minor. So... This is all related to the gavel because, you know, the, we back to the three sticks crossed coming from the totemic sociology into the early hero cult. We're dealing with this seven. And first they stored their knowledge in symbol in the form of gavel. And then they wrote it into the cosmography, into ultimately Ursa Minor in the north when it came into the north. And they stored all the knowledge into the seven stars which make up the constellation of Ursa Minor. And then they built the pyramids, which also represent the seven, which is three points of the triangle on top of the four points of the square. So triangle representing spiritual realm above the square, which represents physical realm. That's very important to understand. So that's what the pyramid actually is, is the ritual in stone of the seven. So first they wrote into symbol in the seven, then they wrote it into the stars, into the cosmography, or some minor into the seven, and then ultimately built the pyramids, which is the ritual in stone of the seven, because they understood this. So the pyramid builders were the stellar cult, or the stellar people, or the stellar phase of the evolution of the mythos. So we have to understand that, number one, to understand their culture, we have to understand this is what they're endeavoring to do, is find a place, to find a way to preserve this knowledge so it can't be destroyed. So the pyramid itself is not only a repository for the knowledge, it's also a temple that's built to be robust because they know it can be destroyed. So that reveals that they stored it in symbol and then ultimately wrote it into the cosmology first because they knew that that could not be destroyed. Now, the fact that the pyramid survived in the modern world is because it was built to be so robust, but it still could have been destroyed. Luckily, it hasn't been destroyed, but it still can be destroyed. So it's up to us to make sure that that does not happen. And we have to understand ultimately why it was built to under, you know, appreciate what this knowledge is about. So the seven represents the lesser mysteries. That doesn't mean less significant. It means the first things, the, the principles. And that's our foundations. So if we go into the greater mysteries without the temperance and the prioritization, or if we go into the greater mysteries without the lesser mysteries. It's, it's akin to uh, a kid who's found his dad's loaded gun. You know, humanity as an archetype of a kid who's found his dad's loaded gun. Because we're wielding, or, or we have the power to wield the forces of nature and unlock the powers of nature and wield the forces of nature without the temperance of the lesser mysteries. And obviously this is a big subject. So without 
trying to be too long-winded. Um, yeah. Well, I, w- I wanted to uh, ask you something that I find really interesting that you enlightened me to uh, a couple years ago, which was when you're understanding the lesser mysteries in correspondence with the 10 and the 12, the greater mysteries, and then corresponding that to the, you know, like you said, the zodiac and the 12 months. Can you tell us a little bit about the names of the the months that sh- that are are storing the actual names of the numbers of the ten, so the twelve to the ten? So remember what you what you talked about the September, October, November, December, and then you said it's actually Sept yeah, yeah, I can. I know what you're getting at. Yeah, part of the corruption of the mythology is a result of trying to put a finer point on time. So, as I said, the stellar people were were keeping their time in the great year cycle of twenty five thousand eight hundred twenty seven years, which was chronicled by the shifting of the seven circumpolar pole stars. So, whatever the pole star is now. There's six more successors that will come and replace it as the northernmost star in that time period of 25,827 years. So each pole star, when it comes into primacy, will replace the pole star that's in primacy now, and each one will reign for about 3,600 years, ultimately divided into the 25,000, roughly 26,000 year cycle. I know this is a hard thing to understand, but uh, focus, first of all, on northern circumpolar constellation, or northern circumpolar stars. So the the stars that are closest to the pole are what we want to think of as the fixed stars. So they're always the most high, and, and the ones that are closest to the pole are fixed. So the farther away we get from the northernmost fixed point, the more we see movement in these stars and the the star that's in primacy now we call it polaris but whatever star comes in to succeed polaris is still going to be identified as polaris but right now polaris is the tip of the tail of ursa minor which is the little bear tip of the tail of the little bear is polaris currently eventually that will be replaced by the next succeeding star. So these seven stars that make up this circumpolar succession are a group of seven. And that entire group of these revolving circumpolar stars is venerated in the seven and ultimately preserved in Ursa Minor because while the, the, the North Pole star itself will change, Ursa Minor as a constellation will always be the closest constellation to the pole. So the other circumpolar constellations or the other circumpolar constellations that have a pole star that will succeed the tip of the tail of the little bear, they will eventually come into primacy. Now, this is a hard thing to explain. I've been trying to figure out a way to make a model for this. But uh, the main thing to understand is there's seven circumpolar stars that go in succession and that the chronology would be based on which star was venerated first, and then when it completes its the, the 26,000-year cycle, then that original star would come back into primacy. So it, that's a difficult subject, you know, and I'm not really fully prepared to, to open up that full subject, but it's a seven, 
And the significance of that severant is venerated into Ursa Minor and then ultimately venerated into the, the building of the pyramids. So in regard to um, going into the greater mysteries is relative also to keeping or to trying to put a finer point on time. And it's in regard to agriculture because, you know, the, the idea of the Sabbath is about when to plant, when to harvest. So every seven years we rotate crops or do not plant. So that's what the Sabbath is, is really about. It's, it's about agriculture. These are not only heady topics, they're very involved. So just to, to give a mention of them is almost a disservice without fully opening up the, the eight-hour presentation for each individual topic that we're, they're trying to discuss here. But see, I understand your question, you know, um, and I'm going to try to figure out a way to, to answer that as quickly as possible. So, you know, the idea of a month is a month. It comes from a lunar cycle. And a lunar cycle is, a typi is typically associated with uh, 14 days of a waning, um, let me say that again, uh, 14 days of a waxing angle of the moon, and then 14 days of the waning angle of the moon. And that corresponds to the, f the female menstrual cycle. So menstrual is moonstrual. A month is a month, and it represents 14 days of waxing lunar angles, and then 14 days of waning lunar angles. So it's a 28-day cycle. And in the fact that it's a seven, we can understand that because the lunar mythos is succeeding the stellar mythos, how they're bringing the seven on into the lunar phase. That's very important to understand. When we get into the solar phase, we're dealing with the nine and then ultimately the 10 and, and then 12. So it gets... A little bit confusing um, actually very confusing because ultimately we're going to have to be mature enough to admit that this has befuddled mankind for tens of thousands of years and to hear me tell it it's been befuddling mankind since we first transferred from the stellar phase into the lunar phase which is about putting a finer point on time so they wanted to venerate in the annual cycles because they wanted to put a finer point on time Ultimately, we developed these calendars, and these calendars were, were based on annual cycles. In the stellar phase of the mythology, it's not that they didn't recognize the annual cycles, but they did not venerate their mythology into the annual cycles because they understood, quite frankly, the danger of it. Part of the danger of it was losing their chronology because by venerating in long epoch cycles regarding the great year cycle they were able to keep track of long periods of time so they understood there was danger in venerating and moving their mythos into the annual cycle so they actually were more they they were more attentive to their annual cycles based on what we call the inundation and the inundation is the annual event where the Nile floods its banks and refertilizes the Nile Valley. Because this is all happening in the Nile Valley, which is 4,000 miles long in northern Africa. So when I say Egypt, you know, I'm typically referring to this 4,000 mile valley of the Nile River, which flows north and empties into the Mediterranean Sea at the Delta. Modern Egypt is the northernmost part of that river right before the delta. But uh, when I say Egypt, I'm basically referring to the entire 
4,000-mile stretch of the Nile River flowing north through northern Africa. So, without getting too far off track, this is difficult stuff. You know, it's, it, it's hitting me hard because I really want to help us understand this, but I realize how exhausting it is just thinking about how we can get this out on the table and start to discuss it because these are these are big topics and i'm going to try to wrap this here well i i wanted to uh just say that yeah like everything you're saying is leading up to the the question that i was um asking which was basically just there's no coincidence that you know september is sept day uh which is you know september is 9 um, that's a ninth month, but it's sept day, which is seven. And then you have October, which is the 10th month, but it's actually octo, which is eight. And then you have, uh, uh, November, which is the 11th month. It's actually the ninth month, which is, uh, nove. And then you have deca, which is, um, 10 for December. And December is the 12th month. So I just find that really interesting that the the information is stored in those names as the you know the the eight nine ten or uh seven eight nine ten right it reveals to us that the calendar has been augmented and then if we look at the whole calendar its entirety and we have the month of july which we can associate with julius and then august which we can associate with augustus we see that there's a Roman convention in this calendar. And it is known, the early calendar at that point was was known as the Julian calendar, which was replaced in 1582 by the Gregorian calendar. And that also corresponded with what was known as the, or what we know as the error in time when basically all indigenous peoples were forced onto the mechanical clock. Mm. And that typifies a shift in the world population going into materialism over spiritual purpose. So that's what this error in time is actually referring to, is a, a shift of world population into materialism by being forcing indigenous peoples onto the mechanical clock and replacing the Julian calendar with the Gregorian calendar, introduced by Gregory the Thirteenth, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth. So... We're getting way ahead of ourselves, but I think we're making this point. Main thing is, I'm trying to say, is that part of the corruption of the mythos itself is an effort by mankind to put a finer point on time. Because that's what led us into the greater mysteries. And the ambition for utility and ultimately convenience and technology, which is where, you know, what the greater mysteries have unlocked, we've left the lesser mysteries which are our foundations our, our our fundamentals our principles disregarded and ultimately lost in the sands of the sahara so we have to understand that having the greater mysteries and the ability to wield elemental powers in the modern world without the responsibility of the temperance that's provided by the lesser mysteries is like a kid who's found his dad's loaded gun an irresponsible spoiled little brat who's found his dad's loaded gun so these lesser mysteries, quite frankly, are really the only way we're going to get out of this. It's all about what we care about. You know, we have to understand that the value systems that we have now are corrupted because they're based in materialism, which gave us corrupted ideals like selfishness, 
moral relativism, social Darwinism, and ultimately eugenics. So virtue has been replaced, you know, virtue has become that which leads to a stronger state. And that gives rise to, you know, I'm going to use the term socialism, but when I say socialism, I mean all, all forms of coercive control, centralized control of resources. Not socialism in the political sense that most people think. Socialism is the ambition to control, and control is an action based in fear. Any action based in fear results in chaos. So our knowledge and our, our ability to reason ultimately has to be based on a value system where we are aspiring to harmonize with nature rather than to dominate and control nature. So the nature of the corruption in the modern world is based on you know the fear of death because the idea that we are nothing more than our physical body and death is a final dissolution. Well, from the standpoint of the ego, which wants to remain executor of the body or the being, that's true, because when the body dies, that's the death of the ego, and that's the last thing the ego wants. So the ego is going to do everything it can do to remain executor of the being, and that's what roots us in materialism, is the belief that, we, that all we are is the physical body. So we're using the body to serve the body instead of using the body to serve the life force in the body, which is an everlasting force. Like I say, these are heady topics, but to not go too far off that point, yeah, you make a good point that is revealed in the nomenclature of our calendar that Sept is seven, Oct is eight, Nov is nine, and Deca is 10. So obviously the last four months of the calendar are 7, 8, 9, 10, but we are familiar with them as 9, 10, 11, 12. It's no irony that we can see that the month of July and the month of August correspond to Julius and Augustus. So we know we're dealing with a Roman convention and we know the calendar that preceded the Gregorian calendar was the Julian calendar, which obviously is making an inference to Julius Caesar. So we know it was a Roman calendar and then ultimately replaced by the modern Gregorian calendar. Before I wrap that, I just want to say that, you know, I, I want to repeat that all things 12 are dealing with the zodiac and the 12 t signifies the greater mysteries. So we know there's astronomy involved. I don't want, to, I don't want people to confuse the word astrology. I mean, we have to be able to make a distinction between all of these things regarding how the stars have been used. Understand that man's endeavor to put a finer point on time has what's led us great into the greater mysteries, but also partly responsible for how the mysteries themselves have been co compromised and corrupted, and how physical ambition took precedence over spiritual purpose. These are all very heady topics, you know, but it's a very important question and it really it really needs to be understood there's not enough i can say about it in the context of a standard podcasting format but see the idea is that we're laying the foundations now and we're going to come back and try to continue to build on these foundations and make this as accessible to laity as possible you know i want to say i want to make it accessible to to colleagues as well as laity but the fact of the matter is, there's very few, if any, 
who have devoted such time as is necessary in scientific research to fully understand the significance and the depths of what the mysteries are about. It's a hard thing to say, it's a hard thing to understand, but the significance of the mystery schools is to give us access to the tools by which we can access the sublime information. So, and what's ha actually happened in the physical sense is that we're, we're reactivating or activating an atrophied area of the brain. Until those areas of the brain are activated, we don't have the perception to perceive the sublime information. So what is right in front of us is elusive to us or not accessible to us because we don't have the areas of the brain that activated that are necessary to be able to decode that information. So that's, that's really part of the dilemma of archaeology and anthropology is that we, we have a case where we're going to the information without enough knowledge. We have to bring the knowledge to the information, which means we have to be bringing a fully developed, activated brain to the information, or the same thing that is eluding our colleagues or our contemporaries is eluding us. Well, um, <laughs> this has been a really, really powerful show, and I'm, you know, I'm just blown away that we have a place to bring this type of knowledge and lay a foundation for what's to come because you know a lot of the stuff that you're hearing on this show if you're not familiar with a lot of these words it takes a lot of prerequisite to really understand or to begin to even understand what you're hearing here today and we're definitely going to continue this and put a finer point on all these topics as much as we can to have a better understanding because uh, this information is really important. And uh, if you want to, you can let people know why, you know, in, in short, why this is so important and what you'd like people to know and where they can find this type of information. Even though you've already stated that, if you want to go ahead and let people know that, uh, we're getting ready to wrap up. Right. It, it is the premise of the show. The premise of the name of the show is The Cubby Hole. And there's just a few other things that I wanted to make sure and mention regarding the cubbyhole. Um, circle dot is very, very significant. It's one of the most ancient and one of the most sacred symbols. So when we consider circle dot, we should think of the, of the dot as the center as the same as the center point of the gavel. It's where the action takes place. That's Horus. That's where the masculine penetrates the physical world. But circle dot is archetypally a bird's eye view of a spire or a cone. So it's a two-dimensional bird's eye view of a three-dimensional cone. And the cone is the spire. So it's no irony that religious buildings typically feature a spire. And this word spire infers from Latin spirare, the breath, and the breath is significant because it represents the life force in the physical body. And the idea of, um, well, the idea is that the, the breath is the life force, you know, and if there's no breath, there's no life. So uh, this spire is very significant and relevant to circle dot because uh, the word spiritual is the ritual of the spire. So spiritual is the spire ritual and that is the veneration of the circle dot which represents cone which is venerated in the 
evergreen, which represents eternal life. So the archetypal Christmas tree is the spire. It's a spire ritual, spiritual. I wanted to make sure and mention that because these topics are going to keep coming up. When I come back on the show, I mean, we're going to get right back down to this same material here and work on these foundations because it's only by understanding what came before can we understand what came after. And that means the evolution of human mental processes, how culture progresses. We have to understand it in its earliest forms to to understand what it becomes in its later forms. And this seems to be one of the general dilemmas of archaeology, geology, and anthropology. So we're going to keep focusing on that. And in regard to the cubbyhole, um, in the name is preserved the concept of the little bear, which we've touched on, Ursa Minor, and the circumpolar constellations and the circumpolar pole stars in a group of seven. And we've touched on the significance of the seven in regard to the lesser mysteries. And we've touched on the significance of the 12 in the greater mysteries, which we get by adding the 5 to the 7. So we've touched on the significance of the numerology, but we've only just opened up these subjects. So I want to invite everybody to come back as we continue to unfold these concepts and understand that these are the foundations of the evolution of the human mental process. And I brought along... Just a list of things that I feel are the criteria for us to really be able to understand not only the self, but the solutions to the human dilemma. Get your notepads ready. So I want you to be able to take these questions and flesh out these questions. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. So we have to, you know, I already stated that the task of the hero was to be able to demonstrate the lesser mysteries. So now that we've taken on the greater mysteries, now the task of the hero is not only to be able to demonstrate the lesser mysteries, but also demonstrate the greater mysteries. But in pure forms, the task of the hero, Horus, let's say, was to be able to demonstrate an understanding of the lesser mysteries. So to be fully raised, or what we might call enlightened, meant the criteria for that was to be able to demonstrate an understanding of the lesser mysteries. Now that we've taken on the greater mysteries, that criteria is not only to be able to demonstrate the lesser mysteries, but also to demonstrate the greater mysteries, because we've taken on that responsibility. So we have an obligation to do so, or we are that spoiled brat, you know, running around. With dad's loaded gun. With dad's loaded gun. These are the questions, and the answers to these questions are the criteria. And this, this needs to become common knowledge, which means understood by the majority of the masses. All of the answers to these questions and the extrapolating on the questions and the criteria, or, or the answers to the extrapolated questions, are the criteria for us being able to be mature enough to to handle the forces which we've unlocked. Okay, let me just put it that way. So, what is mythology? What is the purpose of mythology, for instance? See, expand, extrapolate on these questions, which we already answered at the beginning of the show. I gave you the Gerald Massey take on mythology. There's your answer to what is mythology. 
Well, mythology was the expression of the early science. So the direct answer to what is mythology could be acceptable in saying mythology is the depository for man's most ancient science. You know, there's the one-sentence answer to what mythology is, but it also constitutes an ancient expression. What is theology? What is dogma? What is religion? We have to understand how words become ambiguous. So we have to be able to think dialectically. We have to be able to look at it from both sides. We have to be able to see the negative space. What is the cradle of human civilization? See, this is criteria that I feel is fundamental and not only has to be understood, has to become common knowledge. What is totemic sociology, which we've touched on and tried to help us understand today? What is symbolism? You know, how would we extrapolate on that question? What is, what is the significance of symbolism? It's a primitive expression, but ironically, turns out to be our higher potential for expression. What does dogma, or where does dogma come from? Gerald Massey also gave us the answer to that. He said it was the mistaking of the mythology for history, the mistaking of the mythology for history, or divine revelation, gave rise to dogma. So the misinterpretation of mythology, and then the mistaking of the mythology for history and divine revelation, gave rise to dogma. You know, so I'm just trying to give you an understanding of how to extrapolate on the question and how to look for the answer and how to discover the answer. And we talked about truth discovery methods. What is science? What is epistemology? What is the difference between a solar temple and a stellar temple? Understand that all new religions endeavor to obliterate all traces of their predecessors. So they're building their temples on, this, on the hollowed ground of the previous phase of the mythos. So the solar cult or the solar people are building their temples on the hallowed ground of the stellar temples. That's why Rome is built on the city of seven hills, or it's the city of seven hills, because it was originally a stellar, or it was originally stellar hallowed ground, and they were mound builders. So they built their temples on the sacred seven mounds, which typified the little bear, which typified what the pyramid is. What does primacy in the north refer to? Very advanced. Why were the pyramids built? What is a secret society? What is a caravan? Who were the Druids? What is significant about the Druids? What is the Fisher King legend? What is the legend of Osiris? What is the mythos? What is the evolution of the mythos? What is spirituality? What is circled dot? What is the Sphinx and why was it built? What is Sinocephaly or Sinocephalus? Dog-headed. What's the significance of that? What is the difference between magic and fetishism? What is the hero cult or what is a hero cult? What is this? Okay, now pay attention here. What is astronomy? What is urinography? What is astrology? What is astrotheology? What is cosmology? What is cosmography? So we need to be able to make the distinction between all of those things with regard to early astronomy. You know, I'd like to give you, just go ahead and give you the answers, but uh, we'll just save that for the next show. 
see what you can do on your own and flesh out that and make the distinction between those terms. What is culture? What is agriculture? What is evolution? What is history? What is natural law? What is Hermeticism? What is Neoplatonism? What is cuneiform? What is Minoan civilization? Who were the Mycenaeans? What are the Elohim? What is eschatology? What are the mysteries? What are the mystery schools? What are the lesser mysteries? What are the greater mysteries? What is gematria? What is the occult? What is socialism? Think hard on that one. What is heraldry? Little green language there. Her all dry. Infertility. What is chivalry? What is valor? What is arete? What is veritas? What is geography? What is geometry? What is sacred geometry? Why sacred geometry? Basic archetypal forms. Foundational archetypes. What is the trivium? What is the quadrivium? What are the liberal arts? And here's a good one. <laughs> here's a good one. What is conservatism? I'd like to see how many voters can answer that properly. What is liberalism? Ditto. What is, you know, so... I'll save it for the next show. But anybody that can't answer those questions that participates in the political system should be ashamed of themselves. What is a cromlech? What is, what is a tumulus? What are tumuli? How old are the pyramids? Who built the pyramids? Why were the pyramids built? How were the pyramids built? What is language? What is philology? What is ethnology? What is etymology? What are the Sabbaths? What is the Sabbath? What is the little bear? What is the minora? Ursa minora. Minor mysteries. Lesser mysteries. I gave that away because I'm anxious. We've got to get that out there. Mm -hmm. It's the seven mm. in a pure form. And yes, we know the minora is the Kabbalistic tree. What is the great bear? What is the great year cycle? What is the procession of the equinox? What are circumpolar constellations? What is an archetype? What is a sigil? What is a talisman? What is a deluge? What is the great deluge? What is the inundation? Yeah, I was talking about the inundation now. And one thing about, I wanted to say about the inundation was the annual flooding of the Nile banks with the fluvian soils, re, re, you know, enriching the barren land with fertility. That's actually where we get the idea of Kem, which means the black land, because in the inundation, the, the banks of the Nile were flooded. It turned the arid land, brown, dusty land, black, which means it's ready for a new fertile season of planting. Um, so the inundation was the annual flooding of the banks of the Nile, and that was actually measured by the rising of the star Sirius. So that was the point I was trying to make about the stellar people keeping track of their annual cycles by the inundation and also the rising of the star Sirius in the east and then the movement across the sky through into the west. 
There's a lot more to go into on that, but we're almost done here. So, who was King Arthur? What is the Holy Grail? What century is King Arthur said to have lived? What is Hadrian's Wall? Who were the Celtic people? Or who were the Celts? Who were the Saxons? What year was the Norman invasion of England? What is the Renaissance? What is worldview schism? What is apophysis? What is the Hegelian dialectic? What is Rex Nemorensis? And who is Diana? Those are just some of the questions I pulled out off the top of my head that I feel that the answers to are the minimum requirement for the criteria. And not only that, has to become common knowledge, which means understood by most people in the world before we're going to find a way to really get out of this predicament that we find ourselves in today. So I want you to pay attention to the rhetoric. And I want you to pay attention to the standards and understand that us, for us as a species to reach our full potential, we need to really take ourselves seriously and ultimately understand it has to go to scholarship. I'm not discounting vitriol, but ultimately we not only have to be mature in our understanding, but we do need to be mature in our behavior as well. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's a lot of... Really important questions to answer. So, okay, guys, the show has been beyond amazing. Thank you. That's uh, that's that's all the time we have. So, thanks, Douglas. For... Thank you for having me on the show. Been anxious to get on here. Yeah, man, we're definitely gonna have more shows coming up with you, and uh, like I said, put a finer point on all these important topics, and. You're uh, you're definitely one of the greatest inspirations for uh, all of my work, and and I'm very thankful for that. So thanks again, and uh, thank you to who's listening. I hope you found value in the work that you've heard here today. So if you want to go see more shows and look to see what more or what uh what other news is up on the website just go to cubbyhole.com that's c-u-b-b-y-w-h-o-l-e.com and if you want to find any more uh information on doug you can just uh, go to cubbyhole.com and look under douglas and you will find uh, all his videos and information and we hope to have you listen to the next show coming up so thank you and have a great day thanks for having me on and i'm looking forward to seeing everybody at seed four